Well, we are returning this morning to Psalm, our study through Psalm 119. Today we are looking at the 17th stanza, which is verses 129 through 136. 129 to 136. I remind you that this psalm was written by a person who was living in a culture that was hostile to his faith. So this long psalm is actually a textbook for believers on how to live in a culture that is, has, for all practical purposes, rejected the Christian faith. There are several things that we can learn from the psalmist to apply to our own circumstances. The first and foremost being, be faithful in prayer. This whole psalm is an example of prayer. So all the things the psalmist was dealing with, the challenges to holiness in this culture, the tendency to be discouraged, the concern on how to respond to oppression or even persecution, the influence that he would have on his friends, which he was concerned about as well, the concern about all the temptations he had to deal with, his attitude toward those who were leading this hostility toward the faith, all those things he brought to the Lord in prayer. The second main lesson is the importance of giving regular and focused attention on the scriptures. It's clear that really there is no way really for a believer to persevere in a hostile culture apart from the scriptures. It's the scriptures that reveal the standard for us for what is true over against what is false. It's the scriptures that make it clear how we're supposed to live, what we're supposed to believe, the promises that we should be depending on, the warnings that we should be keeping in mind. I mean, the word of God really is like a gold mine that will give us everything we need for the situations that we encounter. So it's by prayer and the word of God that the psalmist was able to persevere. And even though that sounds simplistic, it's exactly what we need also. Uh, as the people of God, as his church, we persevere together as his servants in a time when those who are committed Christians oftentimes are seen as the bad guys in this culture. Well, the verses that we're considering today continue to give us that same emphasis, the word of God and prayer. And the very fact that these basic aspects of the Christian faith continue to be emphasized really tell us a couple things. One is they remind us of how important they are. And the other thing, the, the fact that they're emphasized and repeated so often is almost like a pointing out to us, we have a tendency to let them fall by the way. I mean, it's easier, it's easy not to pray. It really is. You don't have to work hard not to pray. It's easy to, li to leave off giving careful attention to the scriptures. That's an easy thing to leave, to leave off. And I think that's one of the reasons they continue to be emphasized to us, especially in the context of, this, uh, of the culture that he, is, he was living in. And, and I think that ours is similar in some ways. So let me read for you Psalm 119, verse 129 to 136. Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul observes them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. I opened my mouth wide and panted, for I longed for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me after your manner with those who love your name. Establish my footsteps in your word and do not let any iniquity have dominion over me. Redeem me from the oppression of man that I may keep your precepts. 
Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of water because they do not keep your law. We're going to consider these verses in three sections. First, verses 129 to 131, the psalmist is emphasizing what a wonder the word of God is. Second, in verses 132 to 135, the psalmist gives us a list of four very bold petitions that we can make of the Lord because what we know about him from his word. And then third is verse 136, the last verse. The psalmist demonstrates his deep concern for all those in the culture who have turned away from the Lord. So our first main point is this. God has enabled his servants to not only see the wonder in his word, but to also make application of it in their lives. I mean, just what a great example the psalmist is to us. No matter how things are going on around him, whether he's feeling encouraged or whether he's feeling discouraged, he always goes to the Lord in prayer. And within that prayer, he oftentimes ends up thanking the Lord for his word. He's done that so many times, and he does it again in this stanza. Well, in the first three verses of this stanza, he speaks to the Lord in praise of his word. And he gives three descriptions that are really quite helpful to us as we think about what the word of God is. First one is this. The testimonies of the Lord are full of wonder. They're full of wonder in the nature of what they are and the effects they produce. Psalm 129, he says, Your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul observes them. I mean, this is really just a great verse. I mean, it's a, it's a verse that is really just, just helps us to meditate on the unique and valuable uh, uh, scriptures that we have available to us. The word wonderful is a, is a word that we use a lot. It's a very common word, and which is helpful, but oftentimes common words, you kind of forget what they really mean because you've used them so often. Noah Webster says the word wonder is something that arrest the attention by its novelty or its grandeur or its inexplicableness. It's closely allied, he says, with astonishment. The word wonderful is something that excites wonder or admiration. It's an exciting surprise. Well, the psalmist tells us that the testimonies of the Lord are wonderful. The term testimonies here seems to especially focus on God's law in terms of the covenant that he makes with man. It speaks of God's faithfulness to his covenant or the demands of the covenant. And, of course, the testimonies of the Lord are wonderful because they are a vital part of the word of God as a whole. Jesus Christ is spoken of as the word. He's also described as the wonderful counselor. So it's to be expected that his word would be wonderful. Now let's think about several ways in which the word of God is full of wonder. First, think about the nature of the scriptures. Right up front, the psalmist speaks of your testimonies. So these are actually God's words. We know that. But this reminds us that he inspired, those who wrote these scriptures were inspired by God to write them. By the Spirit of God, the mind, the thoughts, the actual words that each author used in the books that were, that were written in Scripture were carefully guided 
to ensure that what was written was exactly what God intended. That makes them wonderful. And because the testimonies of God are inspired by God, they are free from error, they are certain, they are infallible, they speak with the authority of the sovereign Lord because they are, in fact, the words of God. And it's truly astonishing to recognize that that's what this book is. That's not just a title, Word of God. That's a description, an accurate description. That is a wonder that that's what we have this morning. Well, that's some of the nature. I mean, you can go all kinds of directions you can go with this, but a little bit about the effects of this Word of God on people's lives. The Word of God gives instruction. The Word of God gives strength. It gives encouragement. It gives comfort to the soul. The Word of God convicts of sin. It also points us to have confidence in the promises of God. So much more that could be said about the, the wonder that, 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 that the Holy God has given us in his word. Building on this, the psalmist tells us that because these testimonies of God are so wonderful, he says, my soul observes them. So it goes beyond just being astonished by the wonder and the beauty of God's word. He applies these truths to his life. He believes what the word says. He obeys the commands that are given. He takes heed to the warnings that he reads about. He applies the scriptures to the choices and decisions he has to make, to the relationships he has. So when we see the true wonder of the word of God, it makes a difference, not just in how we see the word, but our application of it. Well, the second description connected to the word of God is in 130. It says, the unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. So this tells us that the unfolding of the wonderful words of God give life-changing illumination to those who humbly receive it. Those who humbly receive it. This unfolding is almost it's like, kind of like the picture of a, of a doorway that's being opened so you can see what's inside. I remember watching the show. Maybe it's still on that Fixer Upper show, and um, they would always take these out. They need to be fixed up, and obviously they would be fixed up from the outside. But usually, the biggest surprise was on the inside. It's when they would open the door and go inside, and they would realize they would see this house like it had never been before. I mean, so many changes. It's just, I mean, they're just—you can just see—they're just, they're, most of the time they're just speechless at what they see. In the case of the word of God, the Lord is not making any repairs to his word. But as because, as we said, his word is his word. It's an inerrant, infallible, perfect word. But what the psalmist is talking about here is the Lord enables us to behold the beauty that is there and has been there all the time. And he's just kind of opening, unfolding it, opening our eyes to be able to see what is there. David talks about this uh, earlier in Psalm 19. Let me read a couple verses from that psalm. David says, The law of the Lord is perfect. It restores the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. It makes wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. They rejoice the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure. It enlightens the eyes. So he says the testimonies of the Lord, which is a phrase he uses here in Psalm 119 as well, 
It makes the simple to be wise. The commandments of God enlighten the eyes. So God in his grace has not only given us his word, he's given us understanding of his word. And the spirit of God, is, it's, his, it's his job to lead us into truth, one of his jobs to lead us into truth. We don't need new revelation. The scriptures are complete with the 66 books that we have. There is no need for additional revelation. What there is need for is continued illumination of what is already there. There's, I mean, we are, no matter how well you know the Bible, you have room, you have lots of room for more illumination. We all do. And the psalmist helps us see how we can position ourselves to be ready to receive that illumination. He says we need to be people who are simple. Now, sometimes we use that term as almost a criticism of somebody about how simple-minded they are, or that's too so simplistic. We use it in, in that kind of way. But here, it's meant to speak of people being humble, of people being teachable. And because of being humble and teachable, they are ready to be illumined by God into what this treasure, into what this book that's full of wonder actually says, the beauty that's there. There's all kinds of blockades we can put up that will keep that illumination from happening ourselves. Pride is one of the big ones. That's why it says simplistic simple here. Because if you're proud, you're not going to get a lot from this. You just aren't. Uh, if you're conceited, obviously tied into being proud. If we are indifferent to the scriptures, then you're not going to get much. If we're stubborn and don't want to hear what it says, you're not going to get much of anything. Uh, if you have no interest in hearing what God has to say because you've already decided what you want to do and so forth, and you don't want it messed up by the word of God, so you're not going to hear. There's all kinds of things that we can do to keep ourselves from seeing the word of God unfolded to us. We just need to be simple. We need to be humble. We need to be teachable. And we'll be amazed at the beauty that we will see that is not just something that enlightens our eyes but actually changes the way we see things and how we live. So having a humble, teachable heart is a real blessing. Hopefully you have examples in your own life of how the Lord opened the door to the scriptures to you in various ways and you begin to see things that you had not seen before and had understanding. I mean, it's always just so encouraging when that happens as you're reading scriptures you think oh I hadn't seen that like that before oh wow that's pretty amazing and oftentimes it's verses that I've known very well but there's another picture on the wall that I hadn't noticed before so the Lord does that for us and what a blessing it is when he does it the third illustration the psalmist gives about the wonder of God's word is in verse 131 he says I opened my mouth wide and panted for I longed for your commandments so from this verse, we see our next point, and that is when the wonderful character of God's testimonies enlighten a believer, their desire for his word increases. Their desire for his word increases. He says here, might seem kind of strange to us, I opened my mouth wide and panted. The imagery that he's using here 
is could be could be like the, uh, of a deer, for example, that is a uh, that is running, has been running for a long ways, and is, is exhausted, tired, and is panting, and needs water. Uh, it could also be the picture of, um, you've seen the baby birds in a nest whose mouth is always opening right when the, when the mama bird comes to bring delicious worms and stuff like that. And they want those worms really bad. I mean, they're open, their mouths are open for the worms. Well, he's picturing here for us a strong desire for the scriptures. And the more you see what a wonder is, it is, the more he opens our opens the doors to see what the scripture says, the more we have a desire to see more of that wonder, to have more things enlightened into our minds. You just want to see that even more. And it's almost there's almost like a sense here of desperation. And there's there's enjoyment, but it's almost like the idea too of where else am I going to go? Yes, there's all kinds of great books in the world, really good books that we need to be reading, but there's no book like this one. There really isn't. So where else am I going to go to really get what I really, really need from my life? So there's a sense of desperation here as well in this panting after. Furthermore, he says here what he longed for was the commandments. I longed for your commandments. You know, it's one thing to have a great interest in beautiful poetry. It's another thing to really enjoy reading really challenging and interesting, like, historical narratives. Or even teaching that has real depth to it. Like, I think of a lot of the, uh, the prophecies or the, the letters of Paul. They just make you think really deeply about things because of the way they're written. But to have a great longing for commandments is a bit unexpected. I mean, most of us don't think about having a deep longing for laws. That's what he's talking about, a deep longing for laws. <laughs> so we don't understand that unless you're in the same kind of situation he was, he was in. And I think I said there's some similarities to our situation. If you're in a culture where there is a profound disregard for the laws of God, you really want the laws of God. I mean, for example, if you're in a culture where people have little regard for the property of others, then all of a sudden, you shall not steal is pretty beautiful. I mean, you love you shall not steal because that's what is needed. When you're living in a culture that has little regard for the biblical definition of love, many, then all of a sudden, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy is pretty precious. In 1 Peter 2.2, we read this, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word. So God's word is something that we can ask him to have a greater longing for. Well, after these images of the wonder of the word of God, the psalmist begins to pray, which is a very natural thing to do. You've probably had this happen to you. You're reading through scriptures. This happens especially when I'm reading through the Psalms. But you're reading through scriptures, and it's just very natural for a prayer to come up. But 
Lord, I need that in my life. I need to praise you the same way the psalmist just praised you. Lord, somebody I know is going through a really hard time. I ask that you would do this in their life. Help them. I mean, it's just very natural to be reading scripture and then prayers just come into your mind related to the scriptures that you've just been reading. So it just makes sense that he's going to be moving into prayer now after he's talked about the wonders of the word. So our second main point is this. The wonderful words of, of scripture give God's servants insight, direction, and confidence to bring bold petitions to their God. Now what we're looking at, these petitions are in uh, verse 132 through 135. And each one of them, you could call them a command of entreaty. He's entreating the Lord, but it's actually in the form of a command. These are all imperatives. So the psalmist is praying boldly to the Lord who he is in covenant with as his God. And he's confident that God is going to hear these very bold requests. The first bold petition is 132. Turn to me. Be gracious to me. After your manner with those who love your name. So here we see that in prayer, God's servants can ask him to graciously give him his personal attention. To graciously give him his personal attention. He asked the Lord to turn to him. He's asking again for God's personal attention and his direction. One thing to mention here. This does not mean if he's giving you personal attention, everybody else is being left out. I mean, God is infinite. He can give everybody personal attention at the same time, and the attention is not going to be watered down at all. So don't worry that somebody else is being left out if you're asking for God to give you some personal attention. But this is what he's asking for. He's asking what you might say, for the favor of God's divine smile. Does he deserve that smile? No, none of us do. And that's why he continues to say, turn to me and be gracious to me. Turn to me out of grace. Something I don't deserve. Your favor, turn to me out of grace. This is a, this is a, a, a man who loves the Lord but like the rest of us, his love for the Lord is imperfect. It's not exactly, it's not everything that it should be. But the God that we love is a God of grace. So in his grace, he will turn his attention to his servants. I mean, just what a privilege that is to think about. I mean, we need the Lord's attention. We're so weak sometimes. We can be very inconsistent. We can be confused. There are all kinds of circumstances where we need God's personal attention to help us. Well, what is it that makes the psalmist confident that God's going to answer this bold request? Well, he asked the Lord, he says, turn to me and be gracious to me after your manner with those who love your name. In other words, I know this is your way. This is, this is your way. This is your manner. This is your way of doing it. How does he know that? He knows that because he has seen that in the wonderful words of Scripture. He's seen that in the testimonies of Scripture. 
He has seen all kinds of examples of that. He knows that's God's way because the scripture has showed him that is God's way. He has opened his heart to see things in the word of God that encourage him to pray this kind of prayer. Show your attention to me. Give me a, a, a very a, much an awareness of your presence. I mean, he's read about the Lord's presence with Enoch. He's read about how the Lord has such close communion with Abraham. He knows about how the Lord spoke with Moses as if one, in the same way one speaks with a friend. He knows how the Lord spoke with the prophets like Elijah and Elisha and Samuel and Isaiah, Jeremiah, and others. And so he knows it's God's manner to turn and be gracious to his servants because they're the ones who love his name. They don't love it perfectly, but they love his name, and he turns to them. He has seen so many examples of that in Scripture, and he feels confident praying that for himself as well. And we can too. The psalmist's next bold petition is verse 133. Establish my footsteps in your word, and do not let any iniquity have dominion over me. Once again, it's written in the imperative. The psalmist is confident the Lord will come to his aid. So this shows us next that in prayer, God's servants can ask him to give them stability in their life. Stability in their life and their conduct so that sin will not rule over them. Once again, this is a very natural request that would follow once you have seen the wonder of God's word. It follows very naturally that when the Lord gives you insight into what the scripture has to say, you would pray this. It follows very naturally from one who has a longing to know the commandments of God better. So when those kind of things happen, you want, you want to see your footsteps be established in such a way that they're consistent with what you're reading about. I mean, we're convinced, as, as, if, if, as God's people, as, as, as believers, we are convinced there's no greater joy in life than if living in such a way that is pleasing to God. Well, this is a prayer that is asking the Lord to establish every footstep. It's interesting how he uses that, establish my footsteps. I mean, a footstep is something you take one, to, one at a time. So he's talking about a very detailed kind of establishing I want stability in every single aspect of my life, all through the day, all through the evening, in, in, in each of my relationships, in each of the things that I'm, that I'm um, confronted with, whatever that might be. It's so easy for us to get knocked off course. I mean, you guys know how we can get knocked off. We, you want to do what's right. You want to honor the Lord. And then somebody says something that hurts your feelings. I can knock you off for a while. And then something disappoints us, maybe to the point that it makes us really mad about what, we just, about what just happened. We can be knocked off course because we spend too much time being distracted by things in a world where distractions are just kind of all over the place. And we all need help. We all would do well to ask the Lord to establish our every footstep every day of the week. Sometimes the things that get us off course are temptations from around us. Sometimes the things that get us off course are things that come from within our own hearts. And that's especially what he has in mind here. 
his own heart because he prays to the Lord, do not let any iniquity have dominion over me. He knows that's coming from inside of him. This is one of those requests that gets kind of personal the more you think about it. (laughs) I say that because I feel confident that every one of us have certain sins that we struggle with more than others. We all have temptations that we fall to more regularly than others. Do those sins domineer over us? Are they like tyrants over us? I mean, do we engage in those temptations at the slightest, just the slightest urge, and we're right there at it? That's why I said this request gets kind of personal. Most of us can relate to it. Most of us don't have to think very hard to come up with a, an issue that would fit here because you know what they are. I know what they are. What my, I don't know what yours are. I know what mine are. So verse, this prayer request in, 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 in this verse, 133, is a prayer request that we could all be praying on a regular basis. Uh, we need to make sure that we have not surrendered to temptations to the point that they're in charge. We need to make sure that we're going to the Lord to help to resist when the temptations continue to come, to make sure that we, have, that we ask him for the strength to fight and then actually do some fighting when it comes. The psalmist's third prayer request is 134. He says, redeem me from the oppression of man that I may keep your precepts. So sometimes the problems come with, from within our own hearts, but sometimes the problems originate outside of ourselves. Well, that's what the psalmist prays about in this request, things that are outside of him. So this prayer is this. In prayer, God's servants can ask to be delivered from the oppression of evil men, from the oppression of evil men to have greater freedom for obedience. The reality of persecution for the man who wrote this psalm is always in the background. It's always there. Sometimes it's in the forefront. Sometimes it's one of the main things he leads with when we come to these stanzas, but it's always there. He has spoken of the contempt and reproach that he has endured from civil magistrates, civil authorities. He's described his persecutors multiple times as being arrogant, wicked people, people who have completely forsaken the law of God, people who have afflicted him in various ways. They have forged lies against him. They have set traps for him to do him harm. They are actually going out. They are actually out to destroy his life. So this is a major source of trouble for him. He's in a situation where being faithful to the Lord and to his word puts him in danger. I mean, if he's consistent in his Christian life, that puts him in a bad spot because the people that are hostile to his faith don't like that. So the psalmist asked the Lord to release him from the bondage of his enemies. Their rules, their ungodly laws, their sinful use of civil authority is directed at keeping believers from living out their lives in all godliness and dignity. 
The word for redeem here can denote the redemption of a slave or a captive. It can speak of a ransom, of ransoming, uh, paying a ransom to keep someone from death. The psalmist is saying, I need help. So when the Lord redeems him from the oppression of men, he's going to have a greater freedom to obey the Lord in ways that he knows he should. Now this, of course, word of redemption here reminds us of the redemption that Jesus Christ accomplished for sinners. Sin is always working to have the upper hand. Sin never takes a vacation. Sin never says, oh, that's okay, I'm not going to bother you about that thing. Sin is always seeking to have the upper hand to lead us into unbelief, to lead us into disobedience. Well, Jesus Christ paid the price of redemption for sinners by his death on the cross. And it's by faith in him that we can be truly free. As uh, Jeremiah pointed out earlier, this Sunday is designated as the day of the Christian martyr. In the last few weeks, maybe a month or so now, uh, I have been introduced to some a couple Christian martyrs. Well, I see more than a couple, but there's two that have especially been focused on that I really had never heard of before, and they are quickly becoming some of my heroes. Uh, their names are Hans and Sophie Scholl. They lived in Germany during the rise of National Socialism, the reign of Adolf Hitler. Initially, they went along with what was required of them, like most everybody did. Little by little, they began to be concerned about things they were seeing. Their dad had been concerned from the very beginning, and they thought he was a fool. But they came around. <laughs> and so um, they began to realize there were some things going on. They wrestled with their own faith. It's amazing. Used to reading the books that they read. These, these were two intelligent young people. Um, a lot of the books they were actually end up reading were books that they really were not supposed to read. They were illegal. But they were able to get copies of uh, St. Augustine's Confessions and read through those. They were able to get copies of uh, sermons written by Cardinal John Henry Newman. They read other things too, but it seemed like the Christian, the, the theologians, the people that they read, really are the ones that really helped them to kind of think through clearly what our situation is, and what we need to do here. And their commitment to Christ was solidified. It's really kind of amazing to read and just see that happening in their life as they go. Well, as students at the University in Munich, Germany, they, along with some others, began to produce leaflets calling Hitler out for his anti-Christian actions. Actually, their leaflets were the first ones, and actually, best we can tell, they are the only ones that were written during the time when the Holocaust was actually happening and calling out the Holocaust, putting it in writing that this is what is happening. It was called the White Rose Resistance. You might be interested to read about that. It's really, it's fascinating. Hans and Sophie were caught. They were interrogated, and they were executed at the guillotine for their actions. He was 25. She was 21. Just a remarkable story. But they stood firm for the Lord for what was right, stood firm for what was right until the very end. And it's interesting to see both their mom and dad said, 
right before they were executed, you're doing the right thing. <laughs> I recently saw an article that said 340 million Christians around the world, or about one out of every seven, live in a country where they suffer some form of persecution now, in the present. So it's very real. It's very real. And we don't have to look real hard to see it coming here on some level. When we live in oppression, it gives us great opportunity to stand firm for the Lord because where there's great pressure, I mean, it gets your attention. Well, the psalmist prayer is for the purpose of having greater freedom for obedience. But this is a challenge, I think, especially for us to use the freedom that we still have to stand firm for the Lord. The psalmist's fourth prayer request is in verse 135. It says, make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. So in this verse, we see that in prayer, God's servants can ask for God's favor to bless them, to bless them with greater understanding of his statutes. So as the psalmist thinks once again about the difficult situation he's in, that's what he just brought in in the verse before. He knows that what he needs more than anything else, again, is that close fellowship with the Lord. So in asking for the face of the Lord to shine on him, he's asking again for God's personal favor, for his grace. It's very similar to what he prayed in 132, where he says, turn to me and be gracious to me. If there's any difference between those two requests in verse 132 and verse 134, it may have to do with the first one had more to do with asking God for immediate help, where this one may be more focused on a sense of his presence, but they're very closely connected. It really reminds us, both those prayers remind us, of the blessing, the uh, blessing of Aaron in uh, Numbers 6, 24 to 26, which says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. So when we're aware of much opposition to the faith around us, we especially need a sense of God's personal presence with us. And then the psalmist tells us what he wants the Lord to do when he makes his face shine upon his servant. He wants the one who inspired these wonderful testimonies of Scripture to teach him. He's desperate to know the truth even better than he knows it. He's desperate to know, to want the truth of God to dominate his life, not sin and temptation. And that's something we always need, no matter what our circumstances are, but it's particularly needful when you're living in a culture that is hostile to your faith, to know God's presence and understand his word. So if you wonder what kind of things it might be good to be praying in these days, these four bold petitions would be a good start of things to use. Well, in the last verse, the psalmist turns his attention away from his struggles to the glory of the Lord and those who are living as his enemies. So 136 says, My eyes shed streams of water because they do not keep your law. So our last point is this. God gives his servants deep concern for the glory of his name and for the judgment unbelievers will face for their sin. In this psalm, there have been times when the psalmist showed righteous indignation 
because of sin that was going on around him and the treachery that he was seeing and those who had authority over him. And there's a place for showing that righteous indignation. But there's equally a place for what we see in this verse. The psalmist is deeply grieved. You might call it broken-hearted pity. Graham Scroggy, one, uh, one who wrote a, a commentary on this, he says he called it abundant sorrow for abounding sin. It's an, ab- it's an abundant sorrow for the abounding sin that he sees all around him. And his sorrow is described as his eyes shedding streams of water. So it's a deep and consistent sorrow that he's feeling. And notice the reason for his deep sorrow. It's not because they have continued to persecute him. It's not because they've made his life more difficult. It's a grief over their hard-hearted disregard for God's law. The psalmist is a servant of a living God. He has a deep love and reverent submission to his Lord. So this is, first off, a concern for the glory of God. The glorious, gracious, one true living God is being ignored and even blasphemed. And that grieves him greatly to see that happening. The other aspect of his grief is for uh, the wicked, as he's described them several times in this, in this psalm, that are around him. He's very concerned over what he sees. He knows God is holy, just, and righteous. And he knows that if they don't repent, they will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of God. And that grieves him deeply. Albert Barnes made this observation. He said, there is nothing for which we should be excited to deeper emotion and respect to our fellow men than for the fact that they are violators of the law of God and exposed to its fearful, its fearful penalty. This is a reminder that we need a heart for those who have rejected the Lord. Yes, God is the judge, but God is also the God of all grace. And in his love and grace, he has provided salvation for all sinners who will receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And that salvation is something that is front and center and these wonderful testimonies of the Lord. Lord, we do thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the examples here of of prayer. We thank you here for the examples of just uh, helping us to, to see and appreciate even more the value of the scriptures that we have available to us. Lord, help us to see how full of wonder your word is. Continue to open our eyes, to continue to unfold these scriptures to us so that we can understand them more clearly. Lord, continues to give us a great desire for your word and help us, Lord, as we pray. One of the biggest prayers I think here that I think that I take away is just the idea of needing to have my every step established, having a stability as far as the walk with the Lord. Help us each to grow in our stability in every step of our life, whatever that may entail. If you're one who's never put your faith in Christ, a prayer like this would be a way to start. Lord, I realize that my steps are always not always what they should be. I realize that I am one who have offend, has offended the Lord. But I thank you that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and I want to receive Jesus Christ as my Savior and as my Lord. If you're one who has never put your faith in Christ, I would invite you to uh, 
pray in, uh, along that line, or, or you can uh, you can uh, reach out to uh, ask for questions about that, or those who are watching on the website or on the internet can reach out to us through our website. It is in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.